This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we'll discover how English heritage gardening teams are preparing for spring. Often people think, oh, when it comes to the autumn and winter, it's sort of the garden closes down, there isn't much to do. Well, they couldn't be more wrong. We'll hear how much work goes into caring for English heritage gardens. Often people think of a soil, oh, that it's just dirt. That's the last thing it is. It's a living environment. Mm. And if you look after your soils, you will have healthy plants that will respond. And we'll explain at which sites you can eat the produce from our historic kitchen gardens. If you're just discovering the English Heritage Podcast, welcome along and make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week we're talking gardening and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio with John Watkins, who's Head of Gardens and Landscape, for a kind of one-to-one gardener's question time. So, first of all, John, uh, how long have you been an English Heritage Gardener? Well, I've been a, an English Heritage Gardener for almost 22 years now, but I've been working professionally in gardening over 40 years and I think I first put a spade in the ground at the age of about four so really for quite a while okay and how did you get trained up in that then I started off as an uh, as an apprentice in the temperate house at Kew I had quite a career working in botanic gardens and for the RHS at Wisley and I spent a time as a college lecturer so I think a bit like a, an artist, I think it's important that gardeners work in a whole range of gardens to see how plants are used and experience different climates and different soils. So as gardens go, you've seen a fair few in your time and, and worked in lots of different environments. I've been very lucky to, yes. So I guess that makes you pretty well qualified to oversee English Heritage's collection of gardens in, in, in its portfolio. Yes, and I, I'm very fortunate. Some amazing sites and wonderful settings to garden in, and that's what's made it so exciting over the years. How many do we have at English Heritage Sites? Well, in total, we've got about 23 national important gardens, but my team's responsibility over is also the, the settings of our wider sites, so how they fit into the landscape and the stories they tell. So in a way, my job is telling England's garden story. Do you have a t- particular site that you're based at? I'm a travelling gardener, so my role is to support the garden teams and to develop projects and uh, develop the restoration of our gardens. And so I work across England. What are the key jobs that your teams would have to do during, say, the autumn and winter period? Presumably this is the time when you're preparing for a new season. Often people think, oh, when it comes to the autumn and winter, it's sort of the garden closes down, there isn't much to do. Well, they couldn't be more wrong. Is it more um, the busier period? It's one of the busiest times if you're really doing your job well, because what you need to do is it's the time when you're preparing the garden for the next spring. One of the first things to focus on, actually, in the autumn is making sure as sort of autumn leaves are falling that they're not smothering the lawns or smothering tender plants in herbaceous borders. So they, those need to be raked off and composted. And then it's looking after the soil, making sure that areas are properly weeded and then mulched. We hear a lot on in the newspapers about worries over agricultural soils getting into poor conditions and it's the same in gardens if you can keep that organic matter going on that will help to produce a a healthy soil it'll help the plants withstand drought during the summer 
and that's all important. So let's see if we can paint the scene at, at a particular property. The leaves are falling, they're on the ground, presumably there's someone out with a rake or a leaf blower, they're gathering together the leaves and putting them somewhere. What sort of happens? Yes, well, so during the autumn, leaves will be gathered up. I, I, they may either be using rakes or um, or leaf blowers. Actually, one of the advantages these days is that I'm sure we're all aware of leaf blowers rather than spoiling the peace of a garden. <laughs> and we're increasingly going over to electric tools, which are much quieter, which I think is a good thing. Mm. Uh, and also it's better for the environment. So it's um, getting them into lines raking them up so that we can then transport them to our compost heaps. The compost heaps are, are all important on gardens because that allows us to create heaps for leaves, which we make into leaf mould, which is broken down leaves, which is a really good mulch to incorporate back into the soil. And then everything we cut off of a pl- uh, plant is then composted, we're, we're shredded and composted. And that's one of the things we're increasingly focusing on on our sites is making sure that we've got composting facilities and, and improving them where we can. So it's something we're constantly working on at the moment. So everything that comes off the trees is recycled yeah. effectively, broken down. And ends up back in the soil again. And that helps keep the soil, I presume, healthy. Yes, very important because worms are all important in this process because what they do is they will pull the leaves or the leaf mould down into the soil. They're then digesting them, bacteria and fungi that are also breaking them down. So often people think of a soil, oh, that it's just dirt. That's the last thing it is. It's a living environment. Mm. And if you look after your soils, you will have healthy plants that will respond The worms are doing their work within the compost heap, is that right? You'll find worms in the compost heap, they're doing their work, as well as fungi and bacteria that are helping that process of breaking things down. And how is it then for spring and summer? Do you have to do different work? Well, spring and summer, the plants are growing actively. Grass is growing. Uh, With the sun, the ground is drying out. So basically what we're doing in spring and summer is managing the growing plant. So we're having to cut the grass, we're needing to water where things are getting dry, particularly young plantings. We aim to try and keep watering to a minimum, but where you've got newly planted plants, those are the ones that you need to water until they've become properly established, making sure that when you are planting in the autumn, and and particularly if you're planting in the spring when the ground is starting to get dry, make sure your plants are properly watered, make sure the ground is properly watered, plant and then mulch, that will help you reduce the amount of watering you need to do because you're trying to keep that moisture in the ground. Is it easier to manage a garden in the autumn and winter time compared to the spring and summer, given the fact that the autumn and winter, they seem to be fairly consistent, don't they, in terms of temperatures? and Not these days, not at all, because these days we'll find that, for example, this autumn, we've, particularly in the west of the country, seems to have had about sort of two and a half months of torrential rain. The soils are absolutely saturated. Not so bad on our gardens where we've got thin chalky soils or or sandy soils because the rain soaks into the soil and and they drain very quickly. But sites like Rest Park where we've got deep clay soils, once they get really wet, you really do not want to walk on them or work on them because you can start to do quite a lot of damage. And so our garden teams will have various techniques. So where they get very, very wet, they'll actually be working on the soils from boards so they don't compact the soils too much. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. So what other soils do you have at various other sites? 
Um, you mentioned Rest Park there with the clay. So, for example, one of the sites that we're working on at the moment is Marble Hill, London. That has got sort of silty, sandy soils, and you dig down deeper, and you actually it gets into the gravels. Wow. And so those are quite good for working on in, in the winter, although silts can be quite fine. They can get pans. A pan in a soil is where you get the fine particles clumped together and it stops water going through. So you need to, again, watch how you're working on them, but it does drain better. But we find that will get very dry in the summer and even sort of early spring if you if we don't have a lot of rain. So we need to try and get as much work done in, done in the autumn, get planting in the autumn, so that plants will establish well before the spring. Mm. So going right back to what I said at the beginning, it's looking after the soils, not getting too much compaction, getting plenty of organic matter into there. Um, you're doing new planting, try and do your planting, follow the seasons. If you can do your planting in the autumn, that means that the plants, when when the soils are warm, uh, plants can root out from their root balls, start to get established before the soils cool down in the winter. And going back to soil types, clay soils are the sort of made up of the finest particles and they clump together, forming what's called a massive structure something potters will know about because they're dealing with clay. One of the advantages in clay soils and adding organic matter, it starts to break that up so roots can get through. And so digging them in the autumn while they're still warm, planting them, means that the plants will establish more quickly. In the spring, they then had all winter to cool off, and so they then stay cool much longer. So it's learning to manage your site. So every site will be different. And in fact, every garden, in fact, you know, uh, listeners will know from their own gardens that different walls of the house, whether they're north, south, east or west, plants will grow differently. There'll be dry spots and there'll be wet spots. And an experienced gardener, experienced teams will get to know their sites and, and know how they will be able to manage them at different times of the year. Do you know your sites pretty well then in terms of their soil types and what you need to do when? Uh, yes, and, and although I'm not on those sites all the time because there's, we're having to look at so many, but our garden teams, they really know their, their sites very well. and We're really lucky to have a fantastic team of gardeners on, across our sites. Is there an optimal type of soil then for an English heritage site to look very beautiful in the summer or something? Or can you just work with all kinds of soils and just I would say manage them? There is no optimal soil. And, and actually... What is important about our sites? Our sites are formed from their environment. And so rather than us making our sites what we want them to be, it's actually working with the site. The type of soil, the type of underlying geology. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to grow acid-loving plants on a chalk soil. Generally, if you go to, to Down House, Charles Darwin imported clay that is forming a almost like a sort of division between the, the alkaline and it's created a new environment on top of that and uh, so we do have some rhododendrons there where he grew alkaline plants acid-loving plants and they're still there thriving I did not know um, that he imported that clay yeah. I must admit so what we do is we do our research to understand how the gardens were gardened for each of our sites because we are as I said earlier, we're, we're trying to tell England's garden story. So we carry out research to un- understand the, the history of the garden, understand the, how its design has evolved over time, what are perhaps the most key periods in the design, and how might it have been gardened. What's very exciting recently is we discovered a diary 
of a gardener who'd started his career at Audley End. And so this diary goes through this gardener's life from the late part of the 18th century into the 19th century, really sort of key time for the evolution of gardens. And we're excited about this because our, our, our studies, which are ongoing, are going to give us a unique insight to not just Audley End, but the sort of the career of this that's fascinating. Young man who started his gardening at Audley End. So that's almost like a Mrs. Avis Crocombe's cookbook, but for horticulture. That's right, yes. We'll have to see what develops from that then. Yes, I think. Perhaps there'll be some sort of costumed interpretation in the gardens at some point. Who knows? You never know. You may see that and perhaps we'll come back and talk of that in more detail at another time. Absolutely. You talked about that gardener there at Audley End, obviously, and um, you've got a lot of sites which do have some kitchen gardens, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Which sites do you have the kitchen gardens where you can grow food, you know, and people can enjoy as they're visiting. We've got a number of walled gardens at English Heritage and many of the big estates develop sort of walled gardens for two reasons. One is if a garden is walled, it keeps the deer and the rabbits out. And the other is that walls allow you to create different environments, different microclimates. And so you can then place plants that need those particular conditions on those walls. So, for example, pears, peaches, apricots, they like warm, sunny conditions. So you'll place those on a sunny wall, on a sunny south-facing wall. Whereas uh, stone fruits, such as cherries and plums, will do fine on a north-facing wall. And you can also put things like red currants and gooseberries on those walls as, as well. And so that gives you a whole variety of different environments in which you, you can grow your plants. Today, you know, we look at all gardens and think, you know, there's wonderful romantic places. But actually, you know, they are vegetable and fruit, uh, and fruit factories. In their time, fruit and vegetables just weren't available. You couldn't just go to a shop and just get whatever you wanted. Those wall gardens were there to supply the food for the family and the whole estate. And in fact, some of our our gardens at both Audley End and Belsay, the walls are, are so developed, they built flues into the walls so that they could get really early flowering and hence then later early fruiting. They would build a fire within the wall and that would keep nice and warm. And so that might bring you a few weeks earlier and it means that the final crops would then be earlier. So they were places where there was sort of particularly in the Victorian period, they were pushing the boundaries to see what they could do. That's fascinating. Outdoor fires within a walled garden. Yes. At which locations can you sort of taste some of the fruits of the gardens? So, for example, uh, Walmer Castle, Down House, Osborne, those are all sites where you can enjoy them. And actually, many where we've got active kitchen gardens, many more of our gardens also have orchards. And so those will be supplying fruit when they're available. So make sure if you're visiting an English heritage site in the autumn that you enjoy the cakes and things that will no doubt have apples and pears and and plums and cherries in them. I've heard that Walmer Castle does um, rhubarb scones. Yes, quite delicious. Do you have any favourites food-wise in terms of what they serve at various places? Well, actually, earlier this year I was at Walmer just before we launched the new garden features there. And what was really rather nice was one of the salads they they made there there was uh, a rather sort of spicy hot petals of nasturtium in there which both provided color and that uh, a spicy salad a spicy salad yes interesting i'll have to try that one definitely how does your work also help support local wildlife 
because obviously you're working with nature, you're managing nature. To some degree, it's there's a little bit of artificiality about it. It's man's hand within nature. But you want to also help foster wildlife yeah. as well, don't you? Yes, wildlife uh, is important on all of our sites. And one of the things that we do is we carry out regular surveys on our sites to understand what wildlife we've actually got. And one of the things that by maintaining a garden, you will have a range of different habitats within that site that can benefit different things. Probably sort of the least good areas for sort of general wildlife probably would be of the very formal gardens because there, there's not so many places where wildlife can hide. But saying that, even the big Victorian parterres with exotic bedding will be providing quite a nectar source and quite a source of, of pollen for insects. So even areas which you think quite for wildlife aren't so great are offering that food source. And that food source supporting the insects, the insects are doing well, they're then a food source for the birds. But our sites are a lot more than just formal bedding areas. They will all have woodlands, shrubberies. We've got a lot of meadows on our sites which are now very, very rare in the UK. And that helps attract um, the bees as well, doesn't it? That's right. Well, and very diverse floras as well, and a sort of range of specialist insects. Very rare habitat. It's 97, 98% of them have been lost since the Second World War. Wow. So when you go to one of our sites, especially a lot of our ruined sites, the longer grass that we've got there is in, becoming increasingly important for mm. wildlife. But also, uh, we're careful in certain areas that we're not over-tidying. So we push fallen leaves. We, we keep them un within our shrubberies where it's not going to smother the grass um, under trees. We will leave the, those leaves. And that's all important for a whole range of things, whether it be hedgehogs or badgers or, or robins or starlings. That's providing cover that where their food will be as well. And so it's giving, giving foraging space and also space where things can go dormant in the winter, where they can hide from their predators. And we mustn't forget birds, of course. Shrubberies are great for birds because the wide variety of both native and exotic shrubs will have flowers with both nectar and pollen. Uh, there then will be fruit, which is a, a food source for the birds. And so the song thrush is becoming increasingly scarce. So having these sort of marginal areas, woodland edges, very, very important. Sounds like there's quite a lot of balance between being a historically accurate site, being in touch with nature, creating a place which is beautiful to look at in the spring and summer, and potentially autumn and winter as well, and also making sure that you're looking after the local wildlife. There's a lot to sort of manage there within your garden teams. That's right. And I think all these things do come together. I think a, a good, well-balanced garden will serve all of these things. And it's quite interesting if you read some of the letters of garden owners in the 18th century. They weren't just getting excited about their newly imported exotic plants and the new ways they were looking to lay out the gardens. They were also enjoying the seasons. They were enjoying seeing the wildlife as we do. So the pleasures that we can have going around enjoying wildlife is as much as historic experience as a contemporary one. And I think we're very fortunate in having historic sites that give us this great diversity of, of environment. And it's, I think, one thing we're keen to celebrate. You mentioned the historic versus the contemporary there. Obviously, these days we have this climate change situation. And have you noticed 
things changing over your career? Did the seasons ebb and flow at different times now? Yes, I think what we've found is that summer goes on for longer, autumn goes on for longer, and then spring can start earlier. And that can actually be quite confusing for some plants. So winter is shorter then? So winter is shorter. So that's the one that's squeezed. That's that's the one that's become squeezed. And, And what can be tricky in a garden is we will get mild weather that comes in from the west across the Atlantic and plants in sort of late January, early February think, oh great, it's spring and may start producing tender growth that's then hit back when another frost change of weather comes. So that can be a worrying thing, particularly once you get into sort of late March, early April, things coming in a bit too early, you can get you can get damage. This also affects wildlife because animals that had been dormant wake up and think spring's arrived and then suddenly it gets cold again there aren't the food sources there for them so the worry for the environment is is that climate change is happening so quickly it's it's happening more quickly than nature can keep up with it how do your teams keep up with that because Um, they don't know when the weather's going to turn do they really well, we our garden teams keep a very close eye on the weather. So what we have to do, I think... Uh, but sometimes uh, you can't predict how severe uh, a, a weather front is going to be. No, you can't, but you need to be prepared for all options. So right. all of our head gardeners and their teams will have their plan A and the plan B. And, and a plan C. And a plan C, yes, <laughs> because we have to adapt to the weather. That's, that's what the day job is. Bearing in mind the, the sort of changeability of the weather and um, your plans, do you have a, f- a favourite season? Yes and no. When I started off in gardens, I think I would say spring was my favourite because spring is just so full of excitement. There is so much that is happening so quickly. I'm a big fan of spring as well. In a way, that excitement can, can start as early as just after Christmas when you see that first snowdrop that, that pokes through the soil. For me, it's daffodils in March, I think. Suddenly that jump of colour. But I think it's seeing, it starts off very slowly and it speeds up. And by the time you get to the end of March, early April, it's moving fast. And then it's going crazy by the time you get into June. Mm. So it's something that's speeding up more and more quickly. And that's very exciting. But I think every season has its great advantages. In summer... I think uh, the wonder to me is meadows in the summer, the diversity, the sound of a meadow, all the insects in there, looking out for what's flowering there, what new orchids might have come up in the meadows. Then you go into the late summer, early autumn, into September. It starts to get a little cooler. We start to get a bit of rain. Plants that may have looked a bit tired over the summer plump up. And that sort of last crescendo at the end of the season I think is is sometimes the most dramatic. But then once you get into winter, particularly some of our formal gardens and and our gardens where we've got great trees, you really see the structure. There's a sublime beauty of gardens in in the winter. So I think the longer I've been working in gardens, I actually like that change. Every day is different. You can see the Uh, passage of time. we're We're seeing the passage of time, but we actually need to think forward. Some of the trees we're planting won't get to their apex for another 250 years. So uh, when we're looking at a landscape, we're not looking at what they're looking at now. We're obviously having to consider now, but we're having to consider how will this be in 10, 20, 50, 100, 
250 years. We've talked about your favourite season, which I think wasn't really a favourite. It's just the fact that you like all of them. But uh, do you have any favourite gardens? Well, it's a bit. That's a, that's a difficult question. It's like you it, have so it, many. It, it, it's like asking a parent which is their favourite child. <laughs> um, and I'm very lucky as uh, head of gardens and landscape, having to support and, and help care for some really wonderful and important sites. And I always think probably my favourite site is the one that I'm focusing on at a particular time because. What is so interesting is trying to understand the garden, trying to understand the history of it. How has the site evolved? What is important about it? What are the important plants? What has been lost? What can we bring back? What are the stories we can discover? How we can tell those stories? And what is also great, building the garden teams. We also have a wonderful training scheme for gardeners and bringing the trainees on. A garden is very much a living thing, and the garden teams are all about that. They're part of the ecology of the garden and um, part of the environment. Creating the, the scenes that we see. And the jobs they're doing today are jobs that would have been done historically. In a way, part of my job is bringing back that human ecology that means the gardens can then come to life again. It sounds to me that that is what you get most out of your job, that the work is the reward. Yes. And it's the sites and it's the teams and it's the people. It's working with such enthusiastic, dedicated people to make these things happen. And what makes a huge difference and makes it all worthwhile is if you've done a major restoration, going back and actually seeing people enjoying the garden enjoying a restored garden in the same way people would have historically. So they're getting a unique historic experience that then becomes a contemporary experience. Looking forward then, have you got any particular projects that you're working on in 2020? We've got two major projects. We've got support from the National Heritage Lottery Fund, Belsay Hall in Northumberland, where we're working on rejuvenating the garden there. Uh, So we've got uh, the Cragwood Walk, which is a wonderful picturesque walk. We've then got the formal gardens that we're working on. And also there's woodland that's just next to the house, reintroducing lots of new plants into that. So that's a very, very exciting project. And also another major project at uh, Marble Hill in London, where we are rejuvenating the garden of Henrietta Howard, created in the early 18th century. And then a completely different project that we will be largely completing uh, ready for this summer at Boscobel in Shropshire, where we're working on a garden that was there during the uh, English Civil War. And we're also reintroducing farm animals to bring to life the 18th and 19th century farm buildings. So every day is different. The seasons are changing. But one thing that I guess remains constant is your enthusiasm for the job. Yes, I'll let you into a secret. I think I'm probably the most sort of uh, fortunate gardener in England. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out what gardens you can visit, head to the English Heritage website. And for a video on Warmer Castle's kitchen garden, click on our YouTube channel. Next week, we're unlocking Cold War secrets deep under Dover Castle. Today, we're going to look at a regional seat of government located in the series of tunnels below Dover Castle. Thanks for listening. See you next time.